We should take care in modern times not to congratulate ourselves too much about what we think we know, which gives us the advantage over our forebears. The concept of the soul is now absent from educated scientific and indeed philosophical discourses, yet we're pleased to discuss the psyche, which is, after all, just the Greek word for the same thing. Thus, psychology simply means the study of the soul. I'm not suggesting we start using the word soul rather than mind or consciousness. I'm just calling on us to notice that we cannot claim to have made progress in an inquiry by simply substituting modern terminology for ancient concepts. We normally associate the word soul with dualistic notions such as those espoused in Christianity. For example, here is a passage from Christian apologist Gregory Kukul in The Story of Reality. He writes, quote, There is more to us than our physical bodies. We are made of physical stuff, of course, but we are made of non-physical stuff, too, an invisible self, a soul. This is obvious, it seems to me, and obvious to most people who have thought about it much. Many, however, especially those committed to materialism, deny that souls are real. Denying that humans are more than physical bodies is one reason why that view leads to the nihilism, the nothingism I mentioned earlier. And if we are just mechanical parts in a vast machine that has no purpose but just is, I can see their point. In our story, though, man is not a machine but a human body in union with a human soul that gives life and motion and direction to his physical body. Our souls, however, are not in themselves what make us different from other created things, since all sentient creatures, anything that is conscious or aware or thinks or feels, have souls too." Unquote. Kukul is clearly referring to consciousness, or the conscious mind, when he speaks about the soul. His concept does a little more work than that, though. He says that the soul gives life, and this, for me, is a step too far. This is a conflation of two ideas, life and consciousness. The author is happy to give a soul to sentient creatures, but makes no such claim for plants and fungi, so even he should agree that his conception of the soul is not necessary for life. Moreover, he says that denying the reality of souls means denying that human beings are more than machines. This is important because I fully agree with him once we substitute the word mind for the word soul. And as we have seen, this is really what the word soul means. The problem is that materialist scientists aren't suggesting that consciousness isn't real. Perhaps a great many materialists fail to take the problem of consciousness seriously enough, but rare is the scientist who denies subjective experience altogether. Given our current preoccupation with the problem of consciousness, we can hardly blame our ancestors for positing mystical and religious explanations for psychological phenomena. At least I can't. If I lived in the Middle Ages and was fortunate enough to pursue my own ambitions, I would almost certainly have been a priest or a monk. Perhaps I would have wound up excommunicated, or worse, for coming to radical new ideas about the nature of the soul. Still, we are very close to agreement between a modern Christian conception of soul and a modern secular conception of consciousness, so it simply won't do upon these grounds to dismiss the Christian idea as superstition. There's plenty of disagreement to be had, surely, but presence or absence of the soul really isn't it. At bottom, the soulless is a non-conscious zombie, just as philosophers of mind think of it. And if the world were actually populated by nothing more than biological machines without consciousness, Kukul's conclusion about nihilism are exactly right. Also, by way of charity, I'm willing to grant that a world with conscious beings is one in which it is at least reasonable to wonder about life having a genuine spiritual purpose. I think consciousness is literally the thing which brings meaning to physical phenomena. 
a planet covered in mindless plants somewhere in a far corner of the galaxy and never discovered by conscious life, despite its teeming with life, is no more meaningful or morally valuable than one lifeless and covered in scorching deserts of salt. Sure, the plant world is much more appealing for me to imagine, but that again is my consciousness supplying the appeal. It seems so Christian ideas about the soul are grounded in Greek philosophy. Let's see what Aristotle had to say about it in his psychology. He said, quote, We maintain that one class of the things that exist is substance. Of this one part is matter, which is not in itself a particular thing. A second part is the shape and the form by virtue of which a thing is described as a particular thing. And the third is the product of the two. The matter is potency, the form realization. And realization that can be spoken of in two ways, in the way in which knowledge is realization and the way in which actual studying is. Bodies, more than anything else, seem to be substances, and particularly natural bodies, since they are the first principles of everything else. Some natural bodies have life, some do not. By life, we mean self-nutrition, growth, and decay. Every natural body, then, that possesses life will be a substance, and composite substance, too. Since body is of this kind, that is, possessing life, the soul will not be a body, for the body is not one of the things asserted of a substratum. It is rather substratum or matter itself. The soul, then, must be a substance inasmuch as it is the form of a natural body that potentially possesses life. And such substance is in fact realization, so that the soul is the realization of a body of this kind. Now, since there are two kinds of realization, realization in the sense in which knowledge is realization, and realization in the sense in which actual studying is, plainly the soul is realization in the sense in which knowledge is. For where the soul is present, both sleeping and waking can be present. And waking is analogous to actual studying, sleeping to the possession of knowledge without its actual exercise. And with any given person, in the order of coming to be, the possession of knowledge is prior to its exercise. Hence the soul is the primary realization of a natural body that possesses life." Unquote. Okay, so this passage is easier to understand than it might have just sounded. I'll unpack it a bit. Aristotle is trying to establish a definition for the soul, by which, as we have seen, he is referring to the mind, or conscious being, the self, or subject of experience. Things which exist are substances, which consist in matter and its form. When he says that matter is potency, he means that matter has the potential for different forms. Forms are the realization of this potential, because in reality we encounter things with form. This is still true today, you might notice. We encounter a body of water, not hydrogen and oxygen atoms, which are its matter. Not bad considering that the ancient Greeks had no idea about chemistry, let alone atoms or molecules. So how about the soul? Aristotle says that the soul must be a substance in the form of a natural living body. This sounds like the same claim made by Christianity, according to Gregory Kukul. Aristotle makes a further point. He says that there are two kinds of realization, that which is analogous to knowledge, the other which is analogous to studying. Let's see what he means by this. Studying is a conscious act. Knowledge is its object. So he is referring to the subjective and objective aspects of a thing. This is evident when he contrasts sleeping and waking. He observes that the soul persists through these transitions just as the living body does. Finally, he says that knowledge is prior to exercise. Thus, the soul already exists in order that it has an experience. The experiencer must precede the experience. 
At least that's what I get out of it, and it makes a lot of sense. When we emerge into a state of consciousness, say waking up from dreamless sleep, we sure as hell do not start from scratch. We know who we are and where we are and the identity of things we perceive around us. This is knowledge available prior to perception. Aristotle seems to have conflated life or animation with consciousness. This is reasonable, but I think it's mistaken. The Greeks, just like modern Christians, did not claim plants to have a soul. This makes sense. After all, we don't talk about the psychology of plants. The soul is posited to be a persistent substance or form which coexists with the natural living body, but is not the same thing as that body. This substance or form perceives what happens to the body, and it animates the body. The soul has thoughts and feelings and all the rest of conscious experience. This is the ghost in the machine. The idea doesn't hold up to scrutiny in modern neuroscience, though. First of all, we know that the extension of the body is not coincident with its perception or its voluntary movement. These events literally occur in the brain. Here's a quick proof. Local anesthesia prevents the transmission of signals from the extremities beyond the point of anesthesia. So if we apply a good dose of lidocaine to the nerves in the forearm, then have you lie back with your eyes closed while we snip your fingers off with a pair of scissors, even though receptors in your fingers will be firing action potentials like MAD, these will travel up your forearm until they reach the site of anesthesia and no further. Accordingly, you will, exp you will experience no sensation from the hand. So clearly the soul is not coextensive with and having experiences of the body as it is affected by the world. Of course, we could open up the skull and stimulate the right locations directly and give you a plenty painful experience in the hand, just like having your fingers snipped off with scissors. In this case, the experience would happen in your hand, even though we have done nothing at all to your hand, but to the brain locations corresponding to your hand. So we can limit the soul to something inside the skull. Aristotle says it is a formal substance, which is to say a substance having form. This is closer to the truth as I see it. This soul, or mind, is a form, coextensive with the thalamocortical brain. What kind of form? A body of electromagnetic fluctuation, a network-organized electromagnetic substance. Remarkably, such a thing can experience the changes that occur within it. Call it a soul if you want, but it won't satisfy the hopes of a religious worldview. We have every reason to assume that Aristotle was right in applying this feature to living animals, not just humans. The thalamocortical systems of rats and monkeys are plenty homologous to our own and so are their behaviors. But that doesn't mean that the soul, or consciousness, has something directly to do with life. You can have life without it, and you should be able to have it without life, as manifest in a properly engineered artificial system. So much for the conflation between life and the soul. But our artificial intelligence scientists are in danger of another conflation, which I've mentioned before, that between intelligence and the soul. A soul, or conscious mind, is nothing more than a substance of a form which has subjective experience. These experiences need not be thoughts, let alone intelligent, rational proceedings. And more bad news, the formal substance requires continuous and substantial energy intake in order to hold together. This holding together is what I call the integration of causality. I call it temporally integrated causality because the energy is exhausted as entropy in short order. This means the integration of the system has a time limit, and it's not very long. This is the temporal window for conscious being. Thus, the soul is no more eternal than the thalamocortical nervous system. Bummer, huh? How could it be otherwise? 
What characteristics should we hold as essential to the soul? Personal dispositions such as courage or honesty or empathy or innate preferences? Not a chance. Brain lesions can put a stop to such dispositions without disabling consciousness at all. How about perceptions? Nope. If you lose your eyes, you will go on having visual dreams. But not if we remove your visual cortex. Then visual images will cease to exist for you. But you'll still be conscious. Let's play a malicious game. Let's start with the old brain-in-a-jar experiment. You are alive and conscious, just a disconnected brain, supplied with all the necessary nutrients so you can live a long and flourishing life in your bubble tank. Your brainstem will cycle through its usual phases, producing bouts of wakefulness, deep sleep, and REM. The network will work just as it has done your whole life. You will have thoughts and feelings. You'll perceive dreamlike images and visualizations. You may have a sense of phantom limbs. Hell, a whole phantom body. I predict that you will feel as though you are floating, fully embodied in a dark sensory deprivation tank. The reason I say this is because the somatosensory cortex will be fully intact, but it isn't receiving outside input. Likewise for the visual cortex and so on. Now let's have the experimenters, piece by piece, lesion the brain to remove your capacity for experiences of different sorts. Your personality changes. Your perceptions change. Everything about you and your potential experiences is narrowed and narrowed until there is a minimal piece left. For the sake of argument, let's say the brain is so winnowed down that there is just one basic kind of experience remaining, a feeling of some kind. This is all you know, this one state of feeling and nothing more. You are conscious, though. Is this, then, at last your soul? Evidently, it was the brain structures we removed which accounted for all of these experiences and personal dispositions which you're now lacking. We could even redo the experiment on another subject, leaving a different remnant of experience, but we still would only have one. In the final analysis, is this remnant of being the true you? So now if we turn off the machine and let you die, is this the soul that flees the carcass to pursue its eternal destiny? Suppose you take heart in the belief that the soul cannot be harmed, or at least that it is made intact after death. Here a new problem emerges, for the elucidation of which I'll return to the reasoning of Aristotle, this time from his ethics. Quote, there are then two sorts of virtue, intellectual and moral. Intellectual virtue is mostly originated and promoted by teaching, which is why it needs experience and time. Moral virtue is produced by habit, which is why it is called moral, a word only slightly different from our word for habit. It is quite plain that none of the moral virtues is produced in us by nature, since none of the things with natural properties can be trained to acquire a different property. For example, the stone, which has a natural downward motion, cannot be trained to move upwards, not even if one trains it by countless upward throws. Similarly, fire cannot be trained to move downwards. In general, none of the things with a given natural property can be trained to acquire another. The virtues, then, are neither innate nor contrary to nature. They come to be because we are fitted by nature to receive them. But we perfect them by training or habit. Further, in the case of all natural faculties, we have them first potentially, but it is only later on that we make them fully active. This is clear in the case of the senses. We do not acquire our senses as a result of innumerable acts of seeing or hearing, but the opposite is the case. We have them and then make use of them. We do not come to get them by making use of them. However, 
we do acquire the virtues by first making use of them in acts, as is also the case with techniques. Where doing or making is dependent on knowing how, we acquire the know-how by actually doing." Unquote. In his Ethics, Aristotle speaks of the rationality and irrationality of the soul. He is plainly talking about the mind. So here we have the opposite problem as the cutting away of pieces to leave only the soul. We have the development and improvement of character, which is not innate but acquired in life. If a person is good, they have developed discipline, charity, and wisdom. These were not present in childhood. In fact, a sufficiently traumatic and neglected childhood might have rendered them impossible to attain. Every characteristic of personality or knowledge is brought about by changes in the brain. Has the attendant soul been changed by them or not? Is the soul mutable after all? If so, then the original experiment of winnowing it down by the stroke of a knife still obtains because changes in the brain amount to changes in the soul. If not, then there is no point in living a good life at all, Christian or otherwise, since the innate character of the soul cannot be improved. Either way, we are damned.